Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first case, there's no going back. So let's do this. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. There's lots of great stuff, so if you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can go on Etsy and look us up at Terrible True Crime. Last thing is that it really helps when you rate the show or leave a review or a comment wherever you listen. All right, let's get into some updates. So it's actually been a while since we've officially recorded. We were just saying it's weird to get back into things. I was sick for about half a week or so. It wasn't COVID, but it was the first time I've been sick since the whole pandemic started. So it was weird the rapid test and then the you know whatever the other test i had to do that was more intense and had to get sent off to the lab to make sure i could go back to work and anyway turned out it was just just a regular cold that's the thing we're not used to it anymore i swear the first time i got sick a couple weeks ago oh my god i was like holy we've been literally living in a bubble for the last two years yeah it's like what you're not used to it at all yeah a little tickle in your throat and you're like Mm -hmm. oh my god oh my god (laughs) (laughs) Or <laughs> before you would like you would go to work mm. until you were like, okay, I'm at the point where I need to be in bed all day. Yeah, you wouldn't really think twice about it. Where now it's just like, okay, rapid test, rapid test, rapid test. Exactly. Yeah. And other than that, we're going camping next weekend. Already? Already. Oh I know. We were kind of ambitious. We booked, so it's about halfway through May right now when we booked a camping weekend. It's only one night. It's supposed to go down to below minus one. We think we've equipped ourselves pretty well to handle it, but uh, I'll let you guys know if we froze to death or not. <laughs> oh my god. Ollie's coming with you on that one? Yay. Yeah. Yeah, so it'll be fun. And it's, yeah, it's in the mountains. It should be nice. It's just all gonna kind of waver on how cold it is at night and how miserable we are. (laughs) How well you sleep. Exactly. So as long as we are well prepared, which I feel like we're as prepared as we can be this time, then we'll be okay. And then what about you? (laughs) Well, on my end of things, I feel like every week I always talk about what I'm watching. So I figured I would just stay with that topic. I've had nothing to watch lately. I don't know why. I guess I'm just caught up on everything. And my whole homepage of YouTube is just like full true crime now, which is a change. But I I haven't watched anything that like really piqued my interest until I came across a video that was 911 calls and it was like a full two hours of just listening to 911 calls oh my god that shit's scary okay i hate 911 calls it sometimes they'll play them midway through a podcast or something and i skip them it's so funny because like i don't I don't like prison stuff and I don't like 911 calls and all the stuff that I don't like about true crime, you think is super interesting. Well, it, it's like one of those things where like we, like our motto is preparing yourselves for life's most terrible things. It's like, okay, if, I, if I'm in the situation, what do I need to tell the operator? Where do I need to hide? What do I need to do? And a lot of these calls were from kids. And I was just so oh, fascinated God. that 
kids could be that smart and bright. And wow, I was amazed. I, I'm getting goosebumps just like thinking about those calls. I literally watched two and a half hours worth. I, I know. For your brain. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I couldn't stop. I like, I needed, cause then they explain kind of like after the call, they explain what ended up happening and everything. The actually the one I listened to today was a um, dad who was denied custody of his kids. His wife went missing and he was denied custody like a couple days prior prior to what I'm about to explain, his kids had a supervised visit at his house. And basically the kids went in and he slammed the door shut on the supervisor. So she couldn't get in and supervise the visit. She called 911 because she's like, it smelled like gasoline in there. And they're like, there's something wrong. That's never happened to me where a parent shuts the door in my face. and I'm not allowed to get in. Like, she's like, he fully saw me and just didn't let me come in. And she's like, it smelled like gasoline. The 911 operator was basically like, well, I'll send someone there. We, we tried to treat real emergencies first. And she's like, no, you don't understand. Anyways, long yeah. story short, he ended up blowing up the house. The kids died. This is the Josh Powell case. I'm pretty sure. I'm yes, 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 right yes, yes. It I is, was just is, about to say right when you were done. That's exactly what happened in the Josh yes, Powell case. That, I listened to that today and I was like, yo, that 911 operator must feel like crap. Yeah. And it was the social worker who was like coming to mm. like yeah, mediate. Yeah. And oh the wife had God. already gone missing. Yeah, Susan Powell. Yes, yeah. I've heard so many times. Oh, uh, man, I would hate heart. the 911 calls. Yeah. yeah, those are just really heart-wrenching. And it's just, you just have to believe your gut, you know, like something's, something's off. Yeah. And she was I right. Like, yeah. And that's what we say too. It's like, if like a family <sighs> member or someone close to the family is like screaming, like, this is weird. Yeah. Like, there's, they're not just calling for fun. Anyways, know? that's what I've been up to lately. <laughs> just binge listening to yeah. 911 calls. Yeah. We're doing fine over here. Yeah. We're great. I'm good. <laughs> Our sources for this week's case are an episode of Crime Beat called Up With The Angels, Season 2, Episode 5, a Wikipedia page, actually a couple Wikipedia pages, two articles from CBC. I also listened to the Dark Poutine Episode 7 about this case. And lastly, an article from The Star by Melanie Patton. Our case takes place in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. This next part is from Wikipedia. Bridgewater is a town in Lunenburg County, Nova Scotia. It has a population of 8,790 people. In January of 2008, Carissa Boudreau is a 12-year-old girl, and she lives with her mom, Penny, and her mom's boyfriend, Vernon. She was also attending Bridgewater Elementary School. A little bit about Carissa. She enjoyed music, animals. She had a little bit of a rebellious streak. She worked as a babysitter and she enjoyed playing video games. Carissa right now is a preteen and she had recently gotten into some arguments with her mom. This is very normal. I literally have inserted here, talk about how bad of a preteen I was. I was a good kid, a good teenager. I was the preteen from hell. It's just the hormones and that age and everything's confusing and complicated. And I just, I totally related to Carissa while reading the story because yeah, it's a hard time. Yes, being a preteen is hard. <laughs> and all that to say, you know, this is not uncommon. You know, this is something that happens for boys and girls. It just is what it is. Her parents were separated, but her dad, Paul, was very involved in her life. She had even tried living with Paul for a little bit, but decided she missed her mom too much. She moved back in with her mom and Vernon then. This is kind of an interesting background, but Krista's mom, Penny, and Paul, her dad, had split up when Penny was pregnant. Then... After the breakup, Penny got together with Paul's brother, and they dated up until Carissa was 10 years old. Wow, so Carissa's uncle. Yes. 
So, I mean, the family and especially Paul does talk a bit after this case takes place, but there, there's no mention of how uncomfortable it was. And, and maybe it wasn't, but I have to imagine that that's like the most uncomfortable, <laughs> awkward family dinners, if there are still even family dinners taking place after that. Well, that's the thing, because they had a baby together. It's one thing, you know, you date the brother, you know, but... <laughs> I don't know once you have a baby it's like like you're raising my baby girl and living with my ex like oh i don't know weird this, yeah this case is not about that but okay <laughs> it was an interesting just little tidbit yeah on the evening of january 27th carissa and her mom are out for a drive her mom would describe this drive as an opportunity for them to have a heart-to-heart in a setting where carissa can't just walk away and slam the door Again, right here with you, Krissa. Relatable. (laughs) I was an angry (laughs) preteen. And I guess the chat doesn't go so well. And Penny would later say that she parks at the Sobeys. So for those of you who don't know, it's kind of a local grocery store. She gets out of the car to buy a couple things and Krissa stays in the car. At this point, nothing is that abnormal. I did that many times, not wanting to go into stores with my mom on the way home from wherever she picked me up from. I still do that. in the car. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you do that and you stay in the car play on your phone yeah exactly yeah so uh when penny gets back she notices that chris is gone and at this point this is weird right they've just had like a bit of an argument but the weather is not great it's you know for sure below zero it's winter and it's actually around minus 18 that night and oh. snowing oh which is cold and that's celsius it's cold okay this is a, a straight up winter's night i'm unsure how long uh, mom waits but eventually penny reports chris i'm missing penny would also inform paul of their daughter's disappearance soon after on january 29th the family and law enforcement hold a press conference at this press conference it's kind of a table and there's an officer there and there's penny and vernon this is what is said in the news conference this first part is by sergeant john collier I will read the part from the sergeant and Mahi will uh, go ahead and take over when Penny talks in the press conference. So this is what Sergeant John Collier says. Carissa was last seen in the mall parking lot in front of Sobe's store here in Bridgewater on La Havre Street. She was involved in an argument with her mother and mom went inside and to make a few purchases when she came out. After 10-15 minutes, Carissa was gone. At this point, there are no signs of foul play or anything like that, but we have not ruled out any options. We are exploring all options at this point. What's the most disturbing to us is that she was dressed inappropriately for the weather. She is 5 feet in height, 130 pounds. She has straight shoulder length brown hair. She was last seen wearing a black hoodie, black vest, blue jeans, and she had pink rocks on her feet. The following part is when the sergeant gives Penny the opportunity to talk. We all love you. We all love Carissa. We love you. Your grandparents are looking for you. All of us are. I don't know where you are, but just come home or call or something, please. All your friends are looking for you. We're all worried. We just want you home safe. It's not like we're going to get mad. We just want you home safe, please. So obviously this is extremely difficult. The family is like pleading to Carissa to come back home. You know, is it possible that she just up and walked off? Of course, anything is possible, but they're trying not to think, you know, law enforcement especially is trying not to think worst case scenario. But like we said, minus 18, she hasn't been seen. And she was wearing Crocs on. Yes. And you know, when you're also a preteen, you do not dress for winter. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's not cool. Yeah. Yeah. You think it's cool to just, you know. Wear a little sweater when it's minus 18 now. Yeah, I sweater Crocs because like a winter coat and winter boots, nah, no way, not cool. The news about Chris's disappearance spreads. 
Social media pages went up, as well as physical posters. Some sightings were even reported all over the East Coast. So news is spreading, you know, all throughout the East Coast of Canada, possibly even throughout the West Coast. And one of the possibilities is that, you know, she she might have run away. We've talked about this many times. You can run away, in quotation marks, but kids, children don't usually stay gone if, if that's all they've done. There's usually some trace of them somewhere. You know, that's kind of a blanket statement, but... I think in most cases where kids go disappearing like this, like funny enough, Lonnie Boudreaux, same last name case, we're sure that he probably did attempt to run away. But is that the end of the story? No, he was never seen again. Something must have happened to him. Yeah, I feel like kids running away is all about their thoughts and feelings in that split second versus, you know, actually thinking ahead and thinking, okay, what am I going to do after that? They just kind of like, this is how I'm feeling. I need to get out of here. And then it's just like, okay, now what? Yeah, and they don't have the financial resources to leave and stay gone. So at this point, it's kind of early on in the case, but I think they're thinking she either ran away, she's hiding at a friend's house, you know, maybe worst case scenario, a stranger abduction, or the elements that night, the fact that it was so cold that she's somewhere out there and could be hurt. On February 1st, they held a second press conference. This next section is part of what Penny has said to the public during that press conference. I just want to tell you that you have lots of people that love you and want you home. If not Carissa herself, somebody let me know. It's hard not to know where your kid is. During their investigation, police would later find notes that were written by Carissa in December of 2007. Here's what some of the notes said. I'm mad because dot dot dot. One, my mom is engaged to Vernon. Two, mom made me move here. Three, mom broke up with Shane. Four, I want a bigger room. Five, I don't like Vernon living with us. Six, the end my life is ruined i'm sorry i just could not not laugh at that i, I know because this like this is so it's just so it's, preteen yes it's like that's it's so literally pre-teen. your biggest problem at that age yes i and, just love yeah. oh my god yes and this is another set of notes she wrote i have to go to school so again she's mad because she has to go to school tomorrow i feel you <laughs> i miss shane and tracy which is sad. I don't know who Tracy is, but I'm assuming it's another family member. Wait, who's Shane? Ha- Shane. Oh, sorry. Shane is Paul's brother who was Carissa's, I guess, stepdad until she was about 10. So okay. the the brother that mom got together with after her and Paul broke up. So basically, okay. I'm assuming it's someone like her second dad ever since she was born. Right. And then Vernon is the new like, yes. one who's with her right now. Yes. Vernon okay. is mom's current boyfriend. Right. Okay. I have to go to bed at 9.30 instead of 11. I live in an apartment, which I kind of get this one. This is mom's new boyfriend and you guys move into a small apartment and then your room is small and you feel like you don't have your own space and your your life has changed a lot recently. Like, I, I, get, I get you, Carissa. I feel crowded. End of my life story. Sucks until we live in a house. So, you know, obviously Carissa is having a bit of a hard time right now, and that's totally understandable. Like I said, her life has changed a lot. She went from, I think, living with Shane and Penny, her mom and her, I guess, stepfather for 10 years in what seems like they might have lived in a house to having moved into a small apartment with her mom, Penny, and new boyfriend, Vernon. This must be really hard for a preteen. Mm-hmm. Two weeks after Carissa vanished, on February 11th, 
A woman called to report that her nine-year-old son saw a human toe sticking out of the snow at a riverbank at a turn-off area. Ew. I know. Imagine seeing that How creepy. Like, as a I know. nine-year-old. I know, and I feel like it's often reported that kids are, like, playing in the woods and stuff and finding bot Like, not often, but, you know, like, the amount of true crime I listen to, I feel like it's not abnormal for a kid yes. to be playing somewhere and stumble upon something like this. Just, like, the amount of trauma you're stuck with for the rest of your life. Oh my god, completely. Ugh. Like, stick your kid in therapy. Yeah. The remains are described as a young Caucasian female. After an autopsy, they are eventually positively identified as the remains of Cassandra Boudreaux. February 14th, another press conference is held confirming that the body was Carissa. Now this is officially a homicide investigation. At this point, there are a lot of rumors going around. One of them being, could she have just walked away and had an accident? Maybe fallen and frozen to death, as awful as that sounds. But upon further investigation by the chief medical examiner, they determined that her cause of death was asphyxiation. She had been strangled, and her clothing was placed in a certain way that made investigators think that she could have been sexually assaulted. We at least have some information about where Carissa was and we found her and now hopefully we're able to solve her murder. On February 19th, hundreds of people came to her funeral. They listened to her favorite song, Bubbly by Colby Calais. Oh, I love that song. I know. I thought that was such a nice like look at her uh, personality. That's such a feel-good like throwback song. Yes, anything Colby Calais is so good. On February 23rd, there was a large memorial service held for her in the community. The community of Bridgewater was obviously very invested in this case and in Chris's story. Just from watching the episode of Crime Beat, you can really see the impact of what her disappearance had on the community. So now what? Who could have done this? Investigators take a look at any known predators in the area. They also look at the people that are closest to Carissa. On February 14th, two people are arrested. This is pretty quick. They are arrested the same day of the press conference, announcing the identification of the remains. Wow. I know, it's pretty quick considering she went missing on January 27th. The two suspects are reluctant to talk and they tell investigators that their lawyer has advised them not to say anything. With not enough information to charge them, they are released. As the two suspects walk out of the police detachment, RCMP Sergeant John Elliott, who is now retired and is interviewed in the Crime Beat episode, says he looks at one of the suspects and reminds her to look over her shoulder because they will always be there. The woman he was talking to was Penny, and the second suspect standing next to her was her boyfriend, Vernon. Stop. Yep. So if you're confused at this minute because this makes absolutely no sense, Penny is Chris's mom, and Vernon is... Penny's boyfriend, and they were just brought in for questioning as suspects in Carissa's disappearance and murder. Oh my god, I was not expecting that one. No wonder she wrote those notes, like, saying how much she hated that place. Dang. Yeah, and I was watching the- I kind of got it, because I think last episode there was a crime Whoa, beat Oh, he's too. so creepy looking. <laughs> he's so scary looking. He is super freaky looking. And honestly, she kind of is too. Like, this totally, like, changes, and obviously we'll have pictures and the videos and on our Instagram, but this changes your idea completely from the previous picture we were looking at, which is them sitting at the first press conference, to now them walking out of the police station hand in hand, followed by police officers. Ew. Now I understand why at the beginning of the episode you were like, don't worry, this is never going to happen to you. And this is one of those like true crime cases that, you know, if true crime really freaks you out, this is a safer one to listen to, as horrible as that sounds, because it's not like a boogeyman in the middle of the night. Like... Mm-hmm. This is something people can't even imagine. And at this point, they're just suspects. 
So how did we get here? First of all, going back, Chris's dad, Paul, was kind of suspicious right from the beginning. When he heard how his daughter was missing, he felt that it was really strange, and he thought that Penny was more concerned or upset or even focused on her boyfriend, Vernon. Everyone deals with grief differently and shock, right? So I'm sure at this point, Paul is kind of thinking things are weird, but no one can even, like I said, begin to imagine that a mom would do this to her daughter. And like, that's not where your head goes. Like, Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) yeah, that's not your first thought. Yeah, like it's like a mother's child goes missing. You don't immediately look at the mom like that's it's not natural. I'm unsure if Penny and Paul's relationship was a positive one or not. You know, often exes and co-parenting, it's tough. So I'm sure it was hard for Paul almost not to, to blame Penny, though, you know, especially when you're separated, one parent loses that child. And, you know, you want to say like, hey, it's not really your fault. But I feel like I would be like, hey, like, yeah. should have watched her or I don't know. And I'm only blaming the mom in this situation because of how this case ends. Right. In other cases where parents lose their kids and, you know, it's this kind of crazy situation where they're in a mall, crowded place, and someone takes the children, that is not the parents' fault. Meanwhile, at the Penny and Vernon residence, the apartment that was mentioned in the notes by Carissa, neighbors are hearing the couple fighting. And they're fighting really often. But very clearly on February 11th, the day that Carissa's body was found, some of the stuff that was overheard was, for example, Vernon saying, How could you do this, Penny? Why did you get me involved? Vernon was threatening to leave Penny. So the couple was brought in, like I mentioned, but they kept their mouths shut. It's hard to say what investigators do at this point. They are obviously locking in on Vernon and Penny, but if they're not willing to talk and there's no evidence, then the case is kind of coming to a standstill. On February 25th, a man who was at a local playground next to a pool checked the garbage can and saw a pink sandal sticking out. He goes back home and tells his partner about this. Kind of a strange thing to like note in your head and go back home and tell tell your partner. But his partner is one of us and she had been following the case. And she remembered that Carissa was wearing pink Crocs when she went missing. If I saw a pink sandal in the garbage, like I wouldn't really think twice about it. Unless I, I was personally following the case uh, unfold. And I think we have to remember that this is a pretty small town. So, like, people are very invested, not only because of Carissa, but because this happened in their, you know, smaller mm-hmm. sized town. So, if you're thinking of a bigger city, if you just go to a random park and saw a pink sandal, you're not thinking, this is connected yeah. to the case. But because it's a smaller town, I think you think, it's this is strange. More, yeah, it's more your first thought to think, hmm. Why is that there? Yeah, okay. It would later be proven that the pink crock, as well as other items retrieved from the garbage, belonged to Carissa. At this point, investigators decide to conduct an undercover investigation. This kind of undercover investigation is called the Mr. Big Sting operation. Yes, so this is very controversial and we're going to talk about it. I believe that you are no longer able to use this technique in Canada, but this next part is from Wikipedia. Mr. Big, sometimes known as the Canadian Technique, is a covert investigation procedure used by undercover police to elicit confessions from suspects in cold cases, usually murder. Police officers create a fictitious gray area and or criminal organization and then seduce the suspect into joining it. They build a relationship with the suspect, 
gain their confidence, and then enlist their help in a succession of criminal acts. For example, delivering goods, credit card scams, selling guns, for which they are paid. Once a suspect has become part of the criminal gang, they are persuaded to divulge information about their criminal history, usually as a prerequisite for being accepted as a member of the organization. The Mr. Big technique was developed by the RCMP in British Columbia in the early 1990s. It has been used in more than 350 cases across Canada as of 2008. The RCMP claimed that the person of interest was either cleared or charged in 75% of cases, the rest remaining unresolved and requiring further investigation. Of the cases prosecuted, an estimated 95% result in a conviction. The use of this technique is essentially prohibited in some countries, including the United Kingdom, Germany, and the United States. So essentially, undercover officers pose like they're part of a criminal gang or like a, cri- a crime family, and they gain the trust of their targets. In this case, it would be Vernon and Penny. They kind of bring him into the crime family, get him to commit some crimes, and pay them or reward them or compensate them for whatever they've done. And then they build trust and build more trust. And then by the end, the idea is that the suspects or the targets will divulge information about a crime that's usually a murder. At this point, they promise to make their problems go away or they give them something for the information. Basically, the whole idea is to gain trust and how the suspects admit to the crime. This plan actually started back on February 14th, the day the couple was brought in for questioning. At this time, Vernon met a nice man in holding cells and the two hit it off. He had no idea that the man he met was an undercover cop. John Elliott, the RCMP sergeant I mentioned earlier, was like the go-between for investigators and the undercover police officers. On February 25th in 2008, Vernon got back in touch with the undercover cop that he had met in lockup. All the undercover officers were hooked up with recording devices, and Vernon went to work for the crime syndicate or crime family. He began doing odd jobs for them. And this is when the couple decided to move to Halifax. During this time, the undercover cops are working on building trust with Vernon. Vernon admits to one of the undercover cops that he had nothing to do with the murder. He then says that he does believe that Penny did. He said he was now only still with her to keep an eye on her. The crime family later tells Vernon that they need a woman to do a job. Vernon brings Penny in and she begins to get involved and she also kind of joins the circle of trust building. In May, the media was reporting that there was a pertinent DNA match that might help solve the case. This stressed Penny out, and she began to speak to some of the undercover officers about her worries. Yeah, dum-dum. probably like, can you guys help me out here, like, now that we're part of a crime fam? Yes, exactly, and that's the whole goal of the undercover operations, right? Like, I'm a criminal because I'm a murderer, you're a criminal, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Either way, both have dirt on each other, but that's not actually the case. In June, police tap Penny's phone and emails. She then meets with a new undercover officer who they present as the head of the crime family. He offers to make her problems go away. While this is going on, the undercover officers are reporting back to the sergeant I mentioned, and they're like, no, like it doesn't look like Vernon has anything to do with this. He seems pretty straight up. Penny, on the other hand, had gotten all wrapped up in the sting, and four months in, she fully admits to an undercover officer that she murdered her own daughter. Penny described this murder like super chill. Like she just like went to the grocery store and picked up some like raspberries to bring home. Like she describes 
describes it as just another day, like she's going for a walk. There's no emotion there. So disgusting. In her confession, Penny provides details that were not known by the rest of the public. So at this point, law enforcement is listening into these conversations and they're thinking this has to be true. Penny killed her own daughter. But why? Why would she do this? And what really happened that night? Penny had taken Krissa for a drive, that we know, but this is what she tells the undercover officer. She parked at the Sobeys and went into the store to buy juice and bacon. She returned to the car and she grabbed a piece of twine from her trunk. She got back into the driver's seat and the two kept driving. Once it was dark, she found a secluded spot. Both of them get out of the car. She tackled Carissa and Carissa fell on her back. The two at this point are face to face, and Penny uses her knee to pin her own daughter down and strangle her with that piece of twine. The last words she would hear her daughter say to her were, Mommy, don't. Penny says that some of Chris's clothes came off during the struggle, and when she was dumping the body, she thought, I better make this look like it was a sexual assault. So she kind of like, I, I, what I'm assuming is that some of the clothes had been removed or look ripped or something and she kind of like pulled or just like mm -hmm. did whatever to make it seem like it was, I don't know, an abduction or sexual assault, which, how does your mind go there? I mean, obviously this is planned, to me at least. This stuff just doesn't happen. Like it just, when I heard about this case, I was mind blown. And I'm sure you guys all are too, because it's truly just something that so, feels so unnatural. When she's done, she rolls her daughter's body over the edge of the bank. And at this point, she just waited for snow to fall and cover up her body. Because we talked about how it was very cold and snowing that night. This next part is from a CBC article. It was dark and snowy on January 27, 2008, when Penny drove the girl to a remote spot on William Hebb Road in Hebbville near Bridgewater. They got out of the car and argued. Penny tackled her daughter, knelt on her chest, and strangled her with a length of twine. Penny could feel the girl's hands digging into the ground as she struggled. Carissa's last words were, Mommy, don't. Penny then put the body in the car and threw away the twine in a coffee cup. She drove to a spot along the Lahave River, and as she dragged the body, pulled down Carissa's pants to give the impression the girl had been sexually assaulted. She then rolled the body down an embankment. Penny then admits to the undercover officer that she had been considering the murder for several days. The officer asks her for the clothes that she was wearing that night to dispose of them, but obviously he just begs them for evidence because Penny complies and gives them to him. In June of 2008, Penny is arrested. They play her parts of the undercover operation, like her confession tape, basically. And this finally gets her to admit it. I mean, she had already admitted it, but at this point, when she's arrested in the interrogation yeah. room, there's not much you can do after that. Like, you've already gone there, you know? She is charged with first-degree murder and decides to plead guilty to second-degree murder in January of 2009, a year after she murdered her daughter. She is sentenced to life in prison, 25 years and eligible for parole after 20. This case shook the entire community. They were heavily involved in trying to find Carissa and bring her home. They had prayed and they had donated money to the search. Although Penny didn't plead guilty to first degree murder, Carissa's father, Paul, seemed glad that it was just over in the crime beat episode. It would have been a long and very traumatic trial for the family. She somewhat apologizes in court, but no one really buys it. Everyone's left wondering why. 
I mean, like we said, yeah. preteens can be nightmares, but parents are not out here murdering their preteens because they can't handle mm -hmm. behavioral problems. Well, Penny eventually says that she did it because she wanted to save her relationship with Vernon. She says that Vernon told her, it's me or Carissa. At this point, we still don't think that Vernon was actually involved in this decision. He disagrees and he basically says, no, I didn't want her to murder her daughter. I just meant they need to stop fighting or have her move out and go live with her dad or something. Yeah, it's not like she had like nowhere else to go live. No, like this was not, this should not have been part of the options, Penny. Like, I don't get it. A psychiatric team assessed Penny and they said that she had borderline personality traits. She had fear of abandonment and distrust of others and had disassociative experiences. This was read out during her sentencing and the judge didn't seem to care much because this is not an excuse to why she killed her daughter. There was a memorial put up for Carissa where her body was found. There are flowers and teddy bears left around all year round. Penny has since applied for parole and was granted escorted day paroles. This is where we see this again. Canada, why are you doing this? I hate that. So she has been able to leave whatever facility she's in with an escort. And apparently she's doing this to go to church. And I don't think people are out here forgiving you for your sins. I, I think that time has come and gone. John Elliott, the retired sergeant, wrote a book about this case and the impact that it's had on him and the community. He as an RCAP officer has suffered from PTSD and he thinks a big part of it is from this case. Penny can apply for early parole in 15 years. Chris's dad, Paul, is obviously very reluctant to have Penny, you know, step anywhere near outside of the jail slash prison system. What he would want is his ex to look him in the eye and tell him why she deserves to be out. He doubts that she feels remorse or will have an answer for him. He hopes Penny thinks about Carissa and what she did to her. He will never forgive Penny. Paul is now remarried and has had more children. This must be so difficult for him not to have his children together. And honestly, if this case has interested you even just a little bit, I really recommend watching that Crime Beat episode. Paul tries to stay positive and keep the good memories alive. There's this scene in the episode where Paul is sitting with his youngest daughter, who looks a lot like Carissa, and they're looking at pictures and the daughter's pointing at some of the pictures of Carissa and Paul tells her that's sissy and she's up in the sky with the angels. And I for sure I had tears in my eyes while I was watching this. This is one of the only interviews that Paul has ever done and he says he will ever do. But I think he really wanted to do it to kind of think of the, the happiness that Carissa brought to him. And it's a really hard case. Like I almost feel out of breath right now. It's, I don't even know how to end it. It's awful. Paul seems like he was a great dad. I'm, you know, I'm very happy that he has a new family or he, and he's doing well and that he's making sure that Krissa is still very much a part of his kids' lives now. Yeah, I like that he makes a point to, you know, keep her memory alive and show his, his new kids, you know, who she was. Yeah, and hopefully we can all remember Krissa for the happy girl that she was, because apparently she was a very happy one. You know what, actually, the other day I was in the car, I had like a 30 minute drive to do, and I was like, oh, I could listen to a, like a happy song. And then I was like, bubbly. Carissa. I know. So everyone, put on bubbly. Yes. Go be Calais and scream it out loud, and let's just, you know, hold Paul's wishes and remember, even though we didn't know her, Carissa, for the great spirit that she was. This week, we will be donating to Kids Help Phone. 
This is from their website. Kids Help Phone is Canada's only 24-7 e-mental health service offering free confidential support to young people in English and French. Kids Help Phone has a pioneering history of creating innovative supports for critical issues young people face. We began in 1989 as a unique telephone counseling service launched to provide free accessible support to any young person reaching out from coast to coast to coast. Our focus was supporting young people experiencing abuse, but almost immediately, young people let us know they needed more from the service than one focus and one way to reach us. I just like to say quickly that if you have your own kids or you have kids in your life and you feel like they're very well supported, it never hurts that they have access to this phone number. Sometimes, you know, kids are going through very difficult things and we might not even see it, even if they're our own or their family members. And having this confidential support and someone they can call for help is essential. And every child across Canada should have the kids help phone phone number. So if you are under 18 and you need help or you know someone who's under 18 and you just want to make sure that they have access to kids help phone, they can text kids help phone at 686868 or you can call them at 1-800-668-6868. If you would like to contribute to kids help phone, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram and TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.